The word that Pastor John is going to open for us this morning is found in Matthew chapter 2, the first 12 verses. For those of you that don't have your Bibles along, you'll find one in the rack underneath the pew in front of you. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born of king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he went to them, to, sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. And having heard the king, they went their way. And lo, the star which had been seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came to the house and saw the child with Mary his mother mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. I see at least five things about Christ and about worship in these verses that I want to point out to you. Let me summarize them and then take them one at a time. The first is Christ is the Messiah the king of the Jews and should be honored appropriately. The second is that Christ is to be worshipped by all the nations of the world as they are represented here in these magi from the east who are not Jews. Third is that God wields the universe to bring people To worship the Son, it is God's universal purpose and He will engage in infinite power to alter things in the world in order to see to it that the Son is worshipped by the world. Fourth, Jesus is troubling to people who do not want to worship and brings out opposition for those who do want to worship. And finally, worshiping Jesus means joyfully ascribing authority and dignity to Christ with sacrificial gifts. So those five truths I want to try to unpack from this text. Let's start with number one. Jesus is the Messiah, the King of the Jews, and should be honored 
as such. We can see this right away in verse 2, where the wise men, or magi, have come. And they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, in itself, king of the Jews is no big deal. Herod was the king of the Jews. The Roman Senate, 40 years before Christ was born, told Herod that he was now king of the Jews. So to call this king that they had come to see king of the Jews was no big deal. They're probably alive in the United States right now, what, three, four, five kids under 18 who are going to be president of the United States. All of them are going to be president. So somewhere the president's alive. There's a lot more than that alive probably, but nobody's looking for these kids. Nobody's tracking them down to try to worship them. Nor would they be interested in worshiping Herod or any other successor to Herod for that matter. So what's the big deal here? Well, the big deal emerges in verse 4. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, Herod inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Now, where did he get that idea that this king was the Messiah? And the answer is he got it from the wise men. I don't know where they got it, and nobody knows where they got it. That somehow it got into their head that because of heavenly things going on, the Messiah is born somewhere in or near Jerusalem. And so they're on their way to find him. Now that's a bigger deal than Herod or the President of the United States because Messiah, Christos in Greek, Mashiach in Hebrew, Messiah or Christ in English, is the decisive king to end all kings. He's going to establish a kingdom. He's going to banish ungodliness from Jacob. Peace and righteousness are going to join. Death will be done away. God will take his throne and on his shoulders will be the government and of peace there will be no end. So Messiah is a big deal. When Messiah comes, everything changes as far as the Jewish expectation was concerned. And so the first truth we learn is that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the long-expected one, and witnesses to it are in the heavens at this moment. And these wise men are coming to find him and worship him. In chapter uh, 5, verse 2 of Micah, this is the one they quote when when uh, Herod says, well, where, where, where is he supposed to be born? And they quote Micah 2, which says, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. So Bethlehem is where he's supposed to be born. Now, that, that Old Testament text doesn't describe Christ as very remarkable either. 
And you, Bethlehem of Judea, by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler, like Herod, maybe, who shall shepherd my people. Now, the reason it doesn't sound like a big deal is because the only question they're trying to answer for Herod is where. If he had asked who, they would have kept reading. The rest of the verse in Micah 2, 5, 2 says, His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. This Messiah did not come into being in Mary's womb. His goings forth are from of old. From ancient days, days of eternity. The Gospel of John puts it like this. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. So this little embryo, this little Baby growing in her womb was God enfleshed. The greatest miracle that's ever happened. God taking on in one person two natures, a divine and a human. That's a big deal. And they had wind of it, these wise men. I don't know how much theology they had. And I don't know where they got it. But they are ready to fall down and worship. So they're way ahead of Herod, who lives in the shadow of the people of God. And then maybe they would have kept on reading in Micah 5 if Herod had said, Who? Who? He will arise... This is verse 4 in Micah 5. He will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. In other words, not only is this baby not coming into being in the womb of Mary because he already had being, but he's not just going to be a local prince like Herod, little teeny Herod. The Chinese never heard of Herod. So what's the big deal with Herod? No big deal. But this Messiah, it says in Micah 5.4, will be great to the ends of the earth. And here we are 2,000 years later, and brothers and sisters, he is great to the ends of the earth. Every country on the face of this globe has Christians in it who bow down and worship Jesus. There are many unreached peoples yet that we must reach, but he is great to the ends of the earth. Well, that leads me to point number two. Jesus is to be worshipped not only as King of Israel and Messiah, but He is to be worshipped by all the nations. He is the God or He is the King of the nations. Now, this is hinted at pretty plainly in the fact 
that the first people on the scene in the Gospel of Matthew are Gentiles. Now, this is not the way Luke told the story. Luke is very different in his selectivity about what he tells as the first thing that happens. The shepherds don't appear in Matthew. The wise men don't appear. The wise men don't appear in Luke. So you have to ask, all right, as these writers were selecting from all the different things they could say, like John said, if all the things were written, they'd fill the world. So they're very selective in what they put together. Why did Matthew, first of all, put unclean, uncircumcised, disobedient astrologers on their faces before King Jesus? Why do you do that? And he did it for the same reason that he ended his gospel with all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the astrologers in America and in China and Babylon. That's my paraphrase of all the nations. Go make disciples of all nations. The point, this is the most Jewish of all the gospels. Surprise, surprise. He is writing for Jews. He's making a case that Jesus is the Messiah. And he begins the story and ends the story with the nations. The reason is twofold, I think. Number one, he doesn't want Jews to be mistaken that their Messiah is just for them. He isn't. He's for the nations. And two, he wants them to know he is the Messiah. Because many, many Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah said you will know him because the kings are going to stream to him. For example, in Isaiah 60 verse 3, nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. That's a Jewish hope that our king will be the king of kings and lord of lords and reign over all the nations. So these wise men are simply waving the flag at the beginning of the Jewish gospel. It's not just for Jews. It's going to spill over the banks. It's, that was really crucial for Matthew because twice in Matthew's gospel and only in Matthew's gospel does Jesus say to his disciples, go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel while I'm here. Then at the end, he says, now risen all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me in every people group in the world. I am Lord and King. I reign over the devil. I reign over the demons. I reign over shrines. I reign over politics. Go and make disciples everywhere. It's an absolutely audacious thing to do. To go to Uzbekistan, Tanzania, Philippines, Indonesia. Bangkok, India, Kazakhstan, and stand up and say, repent, 
and believe in Jesus because God has appointed a day in which he will judge all people by a man, Jesus Christ, of which he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. That's the most audacious thing you could ever do is claim particular allegiance for Jesus from everybody in the universe. And that's exactly what the wise men mean in the context of Matthew's gospel. So second point, he's not just the Messiah for the Jews. He's the king of kings for the nations. Third point, God wields, that's W-I-E-L-D-S, wields the universe to get the nations to the king, Jesus. I love this. I just love the way the Gospels begin. Luke did it his way, and Matthew did it his way. And God did both of them. Let me tell you how Luke did it, Matthew did it, and you'll see God doing it. In Luke, you've got this pregnant, unmarried, 16-year-old in Nazareth. Wrong city. Micah 5.2 says, Bethlehem. Get her to Bethlehem. So how does God do it? Now God could have just whispered to Joseph, just make a trip to Bethlehem. But he goes to Rome and has him do a census over the whole world. I think that's awesome. Way to go, God. The only reason they moved from Nazareth to Bethlehem is because there was a census. And the census was ordained by the... I almost said Pharaoh. I got this poem in my mind. What's he called? Caesar in uh, Rome. So that's, that's Luke's way of showing God will take an empire and go... In order to accomplish the fulfillment of a little prophecy, this baby's going to be born in Bethlehem. Now, in Matthew, you got these wise men in Babylon or somewhere out east of Palestine. And God says, I want pagan, unclean, cultic, diviner, sorcerer, astrologer types to worship my son early. I mean, real quick after he's born. So, let's do it with stars. And he does it with stars. So the point, well, let me tell you what's not the point. I want to make a little parenthesis. This is a non-point in this sermon. Because I'm making this non-point because so many make it the point. I don't have a clue how this star worked. It's absolutely baffling to me. I read an article last night with four scientific explanations of how this star might have worked. I mean, it says they saw a star in the east, and then it says they showed up in Jerusalem. It doesn't say the star led them to Jerusalem. It just says they saw a star, and boom, they're in Jerusalem. So somehow or other... 
I don't know, they got to Jerusalem. And then they ask, where's the baby? And it says in the book, Bethlehem, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. So they walk out, it's five miles to Bethlehem. That's what, from here to 694 or so? And they walk and and the the star shows up. And it says, goes before them and stands over the place where the child was. What kind of star is that? I mean, these are not dummies. They walk out at night and see how far the stars are. You can see five miles. You can see 20 miles on a flat space. They know stars are in the heaven. So what's going on here? How does that work? Well, you can go to the planetarium over at the university and find out how it works. At least one version. Or you can read articles. I mean, it's, it's, it's comets, it's supernovas, it's Jupiter and Saturn going into Leo. It's, it's, uh, uh it's some special light. I mean, re- reject the whole astro- uh, astronomy thing. It's just some special light that God miraculously did. I haven't a clue how it happened, and it's a non-point. Now, let me stress why it's, why I'm stressing this. <laughs> I'm stressing this because there's a mentality in the church that some people have, which I call a mentality for the marginal. And you, get, you can't get too near these folks because they've always got a new tape for you to listen to. Or article. I'm really getting myself in trouble here, probably. <laughs> or book about some absolutely marginal issue. How did the manna get there? Where did the quail come from? What kind of special winds were blowing about 2,300 years ago to split the Red Sea? How does a man live in a fish's belly? How does the sun stop in the sky without everybody flying off without any gravity or just... Now, this is, this is kind of serious because, here's why it's serious. I wouldn't, I wouldn't point this out if there weren't a serious side to it. The serious side is this, as I have met a few people like that, the sad thing is they seldom have a capacity for deep joy in central truths. The holiness of God the glory of Christ, the horror and ugliness of sin, the deadness and barrenness and fallenness of human nature, the beauty of the crucifixion, the wonder of justification by faith alone, the precious work of the Holy Spirit sanctifying through the Word of God, the second coming with all the angels in fire, the judgment of the quick and the dead, eternal bliss at God's right hand. If you try to get into a conversation with these people about these things, nothing. Just just go back to the margin and talk about the manna. 
It's sad. It's dangerous. Something's wrong. I'm sure there's a psychological name for this. There are names for things. And I don't know what it is. And it's just as well. So if, if you tend to be like that, I think the solution is not to um, be scared now to hand the pastor a tape. <laughs> but to meditate on the cross. To meditate on God. So what, what's the point here? What's the point in this text on this point? The point is this. These star, comet, planet, supernova, special miraculous light, whatever, are not doing this stuff of their own accord. God's doing this. And the reason he's doing it is to get pagans to their Savior. That's the point. He's got a big, wide embrace. And he's showing these particular people that he's focused on for 2,000 years. I'm done focusing on you. I love you. Believe my son and you'll have everlasting life. But I'm after the nations with a passion from now on. At the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, it is still a come-see religion. And at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, it's a go-tell religion. Still coming to see, just like in the Old Testament, come see the temple, come see the great king. Come on, Queen of Sheba. Come on up here and see Solomon. He'll wow you. Same with the wise men. Come on. He's here in Jerusalem or in Bethlehem. But by the end of the purpose of Christ on earth, it is no longer come see. It is go tell. The fourth point is that Jesus is troubling to people who do not want to worship him. And he brings out opposition for those who do want to worship him. Now, I see two kinds of people who don't want to worship him. I know who wants to worship him. Oh, these wise men, they really want to worship him. But the first group are the chief priests and the scribes, and they don't want to worship him. How do we know that? Well, verse 4, they go to Herod on his bidding and gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people. Herod inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said, Bethlehem. Back to work. Is that stunning? Bethlehem. Now back to church. Let's go back to church. Do church. Why didn't they go with the wise men? Because they don't want to worship the Messiah. The Bible says, if you do not have the Son, you do not have the Father. And when the Son came, most of the Jewish leaders, not all, rejected the Son. Which means all their worship was not a worship of the true God. 
If you do not have the Son, you do not have the Father. The litmus paper in any people group and any church or any tribe of whether they are worshiping a true God is whether when they are shown Jesus, they love him and want to worship him. That's the litmus paper of the authenticity of what they're doing. And they didn't. They were not interested in worshiping Jesus. So there's one category of people, call them indifferent, oblivious, blasé. Oh, there's a great troubling in the city. Now, don't, don't miss this. They, they were not ignorant of what was happening. It says that the whole city was stirred. You see that in verse 3? When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So the whole city said, hey, did you hear what's happening? The king received some foreigners. They've they seen signs. They say the Messiah has come. Everybody's talking like that in Jerusalem. And the leaders don't go with the wise men. That's flabbergasting. That's an indifference that is staggering. And it's very much alive in the world today. Indifference. Why should we go to Jesus? What's the big deal? The other kind of person who doesn't want to worship Jesus is Herod. And he is anything but indifferent to Jesus. He is scared to death. Because they say he's king. And he says, I'm king. And I have a fragile reign here anyway. And so I better take care of this. And so tell me when you saw the star. Oh, about two years ago. Okay, two years ago. Maybe he was born when you saw the star. Now, frankly, I think he was probably born just maybe a few months before they arrived, but that's irrelevant to this sermon. Two years would do it. So I'm going to kill this baby. I'm going to kill him. And when they sneak away because God told them to, he killed all the babies in Bethlehem, two years old and under. That's not indifference. That's hostility. So you got two kinds of people who don't want to worship Jesus. The indifferent and the hostile. And I could ask you this morning, how are you going to handle that when you meet it in life? Your kid gets shot at a Kentucky high school. Or you get lied about at work. But I'm not going to ask you that question. I'm going to ask you, all of you in this room, because I don't know a lot of you, are you in either of those two categories this morning? Are you indifferent or are you hostile? And if you're in one of those two categories, here's my plea. Christmas 1997 and this message and your family and your situation is a good time to reconsider Christ. Reconsider Him. Ask from texts like this, is my indifference good? Is it right? Is my hostility warranted? Or have I had a, a jaundiced, false, second-hand 
view of Christ? And should I be fair and honest and go back to the original sources and give it a hearing and look at it afresh and see? I invite you to do that. Last point I want to make is that worshiping Jesus is joyfully ascribing authority and dignity to Christ with sacrificial gifts. Joyfully ascribing authority and dignity to Christ with sacrificial gifts. There are four pieces there. Let me show you where I get them. First, they ascribe authority to Christ in verse 2. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? They are ready to bow down to a king. They are ascribing authority to him over their lives already. Second, dignity. Look at verse 11. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground. They fell to the ground and worshipped him. Now, when you fall to the ground, you're saying to the person before whom you fall, I lift you up, I put you up, you are dignified, you are great, you are wonderful, I am low, I am sinful, I am common, and you are extraordinary. And they were eager to do that. Eager to do it. That's the third point. Joyfully ascribing authority and dignity. Look at verse 10. This is an amazing verse because of this quadruple joy. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Why? They're on their way to the king. Notice the quadruple joy. It might have said, when they saw the star, they rejoiced. Or it might have said, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with joy. Or it might have said, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with great joy. Or it might have said, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And that's what it said. There's a four-fold hammering home that this is the happiest errand of their lives. Is that the way you feel about coming to Jesus? Worship is not a dutiful Willpower, verbal, or body ascription of authority and dignity to Jesus. That is not biblical worship. Biblical worship is seeing that he's just over the horizon down at 694. And I can walk that in about 45 minutes. And I'll see him. And all the way there, exceeding great joy, that's worship. And if you don't feel attracted to Jesus, you can't worship. You can't. You need to just repent and ask for your eyes to be opened. Authentic biblical worship is a A delighting in his authority. A delighting in his dignity. A seeing this little baby and saying one day this baby's going to rule the world because his going forth was from of ancient days and falling down and saying, I can't believe I'm looking on the baby. What a privilege. And finally, with sacrificial gifts... 
joyfully ascribing authority and dignity to the Christ with sacrificial gifts. Now, if you've been tracking with me for the last several weeks on worship, this will be a problem. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, but he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. Acts 17.25 They're given to Jesus. Gold and frankincense and myrrh and it's worship. So what's the dynamic here? What's going on? There must be a way to do this. I'm not going to say, oh, it doesn't fit my paradigm. That text is out of the Bible. We do worship different at Bethlehem. We don't give, we get. We're Christian hedonists. No, Christian hedonists believe the Bible. That's why we're Christian hedonists. And if the Bible upsets our theology cart, we go with the Bible. Is that okay? Amen. So, Piper, what are you going to say about this? Well, three things. One, it isn't bribery. Deuteronomy 10.17 says God is not bribed. He takes no bribes. So that's not the way to understand it. Two, it isn't financial assistance. God is God. He doesn't need your financial assistance. And when you bring him a gift, he's not the richer for it. He owned it already. Could have taken it from you any time he wanted because it was his and it wouldn't have been stealing. So it isn't financial Assistance. Well, what is it then? How shall we grasp this thing? And I think that it's very much like fasting. I put this in the same category as fasting. It is an intensifier of desire. When I bring a pot of gold that I have assembled all my life long and lay it at the feet of Jesus. What I am saying, I think, what I should be saying is this. The joy that I pursue is not the hope of getting rich from you, but getting you. You get that? The joy I pursue in bringing my gold to you is not the hope of getting rich from you, but getting you. And the reason I give you what you don't need and I would enjoy to keep is so that it will be intensely plain that I want you more than I want gold. That's the way a Christian hedonist gives to Jesus. And I think it is a great honor to him and a great breaking to us and a great transformation of us. So my closing exhortation is take the truth of Christ revealed in this text and ask the Lord to open your heart to see that he's the Messiah, the King of the Jews, to see that he's more than the King of the Jews, he is the King of the nations, that God wants so much for the nations to come to the Son that he will wield the empire and wield the stars in order to get it done 
and in spite of all opposition, no matter what hostility or indifference, I will come and fall before him and bring all my life and all my treasures and say, this does not satisfy. You satisfy. And he'll be pleased because he'll be worshipped. And now until 1045 on Christmas Eve, the Lord bless you and the Lord satisfy you with himself and with his son. In Jesus' name and all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.